Before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and given in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. Jesus takes prehistory, the, the bit before history even really gets going in the world, and he, and he says, that's what people were doing. They were eating food, they were drinking juice, wine, whatever it was, and they were getting married. And that's kind of what humanity has been doing ever since. Marriage has been an institution celebrated down the ages and in every culture, religious or secular, for millennia and millennia. It's highly likely that you will attend a wedding or two in your life. Many here will be married, perhaps about two-thirds of us, statistically, in this room. Everybody will have a view of marriage, and every marriage is different. But it would be important to note that Marriage as an institution feels under pressure these days. It seems to get a bad rap in our culture. Fewer people get married, and when they do, they get married at an older and older age. Opponents of marriage can dishonor marriage by suggesting it's oppressive or patriarchal. Even words like husband and wife kind of stick on your tongue slightly when you're introducing what other people refer to as their partner or their better half. Understandings of what marriage is vary greatly. I remember um, a number of years ago when we had our first uh, wedding at King's, somebody asked me if I would marry them. Um, And uh, I said, yeah, and I had to get the paperwork done. I had to chat to the Scottish registrars. And they said, please, would you send us a copy of your vows that you're going to be using? And I did, and I picked up the phone. I said, said, out of interest, I said, what do the vows need to say for people to be legally married? And he said, oh, it's, it's pretty straightforward, really. He says, one person has to say, I take you to be my spouse. And the other person has to say, I take you to be my spouse. And he says, and then you have to say, you're married. I thought, wow, that's pretty easy in the eyes of the law. Now, of course, many of us will have very much broader and deeper and richer understandings of marriage. If you're a Christian, you'll have a very much richer understanding of what marriage is. But even our views, even if you're a Christian, it will fall short of what a biblical view of marriage is at times. So it'd be good to talk about it today in this bigger series of The Better Story. We're looking at the part marriage has to play in this big and better story. Important. I am not saying that marriage is the better story. I am not saying that marriage is the better story. I'm saying it points to what is. And it's a really important pointer to what it is. As part of the story, marriage will be something rightly entered into by some and rightly not entered into by others. So here's a scripture to get us going. Hebrews 13. It says, marriage should be honored by all. So the immediate question is, well, why don't we just do a marriage seminar and the married people can learn about marriage? And the Bible says, well, because actually everybody needs to understand what marriage is and the importance of it. We're instructed to honor the institution of marriage. So it's important to talk about this, whoever we are. And this message comes with a slight warning that I'm likely to offend everybody at some point this morning. I'm sorry about that. If you're married, I probably won't talk about marriage enough and in a way that's helpful enough for you. And if you're not married, if you're single, or you've had a bad experience of relationships or marriage, you'll probably be sitting uncomfortably thinking, I really wish we weren't talking about this today, and I'm so sorry about that. 
And you probably may think, I don't put enough value on this wonderful gift called singleness that the Bible also talks about. And you're right, I'm not really talking about that today. Or perhaps you will disagree with the definitions and teachings of marriage that I will be using and articulated by Jesus in the verses we're about to read. And I just want to say that if your relationship or your understanding of relationships is different to mine, I'm so glad that you're here and I hope you feel so welcome. And I hope we might get to talk afterwards. And as we read the Bible together, I just want you to be able to be open-hearted along with the rest of us, to try and learn what the Bible is teaching on this important subject. My hope is that those risks are worth it if we can better understand what marriage is and why it matters. So please do look at the verses in your Bibles or look at them online or take notes of them so you can look at it later so you can check into it for yourself. Let's just pray together. Lord Jesus, we're so thankful for your great love for us that we've been enjoying this morning. Thank you that you've been opening the eyes of our heart to see all that you are to us. I pray, Lord, would you now open your words so that we can understand and that we can know and that we can be set free and we can walk in all the things you've called us to. Let this word be a blessing to everybody here in some way, I pray. Amen. Okay, so please look at Matthew chapter 19. We're going to read verses 4 and 6. And the question comes to Jesus. Some Pharisees come to him and test him. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? That's the question. He replies, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. They are no longer two. But one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. We're not going to read the rest of that teaching. We're not teaching about divorce this morning, which is another whole message, but we're teaching about marriage. But this teaching about marriage comes out clearest in this answer to this question from Jesus. Now, the opponents of Jesus often tried to trap him with trick questions. And here was the difficult question. This one was about divorce. How, well, how easy should it be, Jesus? And they even quote Moses, who they respected and they knew Jesus respected. And they said, so Jesus, Moses said, let's make it easy, particularly for the men. What do you think, Jesus? They were trying to bring Jesus onto team Pharisee and team Moses. And Jesus doesn't go there with them. Now, you won't be alone if in this world, in your interactions with people, that people will sometimes come to you with a definition of what marriage is or what love is. They say, well, you, you're not going to disagree with us on this, are you? As a Christian, you're not going to say something different to what everybody else in the world is saying these days. Let's take courage from Jesus that he holds to what he believes God has said. They wanted Jesus to approve their practice and understanding. The mantra of our age is, love is love. But the Bible actually says in 1 John chapter 4 that God is love. Therefore, our best understanding of what love is and how it outworks in relationships is to understand that God tells us what love is. And that we look at his word to best understand how we can outwork that in our lives. It actually matters very little what I think or what any of us think. It matters what Jesus teaches. 
And Jesus brings us back to a creation account, a pure understanding of love and marriage and its design from before the fall. He articulated truth in the midst of a fallen world. He wasn't prepared to say, well, you know, it's all gone wrong. Anything goes these days. But he managed to articulate that with remarkable clarity, but with remarkable grace. And let's not forget that this same Jesus, the longest conversation he had recorded in Scripture in the Gospels, with any person, with a a woman who had been divorced five times, who he talked to at length, and he unpacked her shame that she felt. And then he offered her freely of the water of life. And then he gave her the privilege of seeing the largest number of people turning to Christ in the Gospels as she goes and tells her whole town about Jesus. Jesus models grace and truth. But let's look at this teaching on marriage. So what is it? Jesus starts, at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Just pausing, because often in this series, we're uh, referring to Genesis, and there'll be differing opinions in the room of how God created the world and humanity. Please don't get too distracted by different opinions on those things. If you don't hold a literal view of Adam and Eve's creation and how that came to being, the important thing is that Jesus actually refers back to that passage, and he uses a basis for what he wants to teach people. And we can do the same, and we should do the same. So if you read the Genesis account, you'll also find there's a bit more detail in Genesis chapter 2. So we're just going to read a few verses from there alongside what Jesus summarized for us. And uh, the, the, the passage uh, is, it says that God paraded all the animals before the man to see if a suitable helper could be found. And it concludes, for Adam, no suitable helper was found. Next slide, please, John. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So in answer to the question the Pharisees were asking, Jesus seems to be giving us, he's rebranding the question. He said, well, what is marriage? And that's what we're looking at over this next few minutes. Well, what is marriage and why is it important? And there's a few things that we can unpack from what Jesus says and from the Genesis account. Firstly, that marriage is God's design. Marriage seems to be a very good thing at the heart of God's creation. Animals don't marry. Human beings do. This is a gift available only to God's image bearers on the earth, reflecting something of his oneness as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Sometimes you'll hear hear people say, well, yeah, just marriage is just a, a social construct. It's just what people have made. So therefore, I mean, if that's true, of course, then of course it doesn't matter what anybody says about it. It's just what you think about it yourself. But the Bible would say that God made marriage. It was God's idea, and he made it very good. Jesus himself attended a marriage in Cana, in Galilee. He approved of that marriage. 
Marriage is designed, in God's design, to bring both the man and the woman to fruition in their lives. It's a place of divine blessing. It says in Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. That's why we love to marry people here in Kings, because we get to pray for them and say, bless you. God bless you in this new life together. Proverbs 18 says that he who finds a wife finds a good thing and finds favor from the Lord. And that was written in a culture when the cultural pressure would have been to say, well, you know, he who finds a husband finds a good thing. Because that's where all the money and all the security was. But the Bible says, he finds a wife. He finds a wife. It's a wonderful, wonderful gift from God. So the question, if marriage is God's gift and it's part of his created world, is it a gift he has for everyone? Well, we don't live in Eden. And we don't know what would have happened in subsequent generations of Eden, what that would have looked like. We live in a fallen world. Therefore, whilst also teaching us that marriage is God's design for humanity, Jesus also gives some approval to his disciples' comments. When at the end of his teaching about marriage that we've just looked at, they say, blimey, they say, Jesus, if that's the case, it would be better not to marry. Because he's just made it sound really hard. (laughs) And Jesus says, well, to those who can accept it, that's not a bad thing. Marriage isn't for everyone in this age. If marriage is a lifelong union, then in a sinful world, not everybody has the opportunity, or sometimes the desire, or sometimes the maturity, or the grace to be able to do that. But most people will want to. And he will give special grace, 1 Corinthians 7, for those who don't marry, and special grace for those who do. That's the first thing. It's God's design. Secondly, Marriage is a union of purpose. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds in the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. As Raph talked about last week, he gave them stewardship over the earth in terms of their work. But he also gave them this wonderful gift of procreation, of being able to have children, Marriage partners are not simply soulmates. That's often talked about as if to to be married is just to find your perfect match and you live happily ever after. It's not a biblical view. That's not the ideal. As a result of the fall, relationships are distorted through sin, leading to self-centeredness and self-protection. And we see so much of that twisting and distorting, even marriage. But they steward the earth together. Marriage has an outlet. It's not good for the man to be alone. In fact, it's impossible for him to fulfill the creation mandate to fill the earth by himself. He's going to need help. It's too big a job. This will require teamwork to make the dream work. And it will require many, many more people. Where possible, it's God's design in marriage and purpose in marriage, that we should have the joy of raising children and teach them to love and serve him. It's not coincidental that in our Western world where marriage rates are declining, that you also find that fewer and fewer people are having children. And increasingly, in political spheres, people are talking about this as a crisis, that people aren't having kids anymore. 
And you look at it and say, well, that's because they're not getting married anymore. And marriage is clearly the safest and best place where you can raise children. In the UK, we're at our lowest birth rate for 20 years. We're becoming an aging population. In Japan, they've even started paying people now to give birth and raise children. Such is the crisis in their society. All of this is a departure from this intention of God giving this gift of marriage. Now, it's not always possible to have children, and that often comes with pain. But where possible, we should pursue this wonderful gift that God has for us. Thirdly, marriage is a union of equals. God created the male and female. He creates Adam, and he commanded him to work the garden. And then having concluded it wasn't good for Adam to be alone, it says God created a helper suitable for him. Now, that's not a demeaning term. That's not saying some kind of sidekick to Adam. He's the main thing, and she's kind of the helper. No, like, if, if you're a struggling nation in war, and then the USA gets on the phone and says, we're coming to help, that's kind of a different picture, isn't it? Wow. So when David says of God in Psalm 54, Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. It says something about the gift that God was giving to Adam. Matthew Henry comments on this picture of uh, the woman being taken out of the side of man. He says, the woman, was made out of, the woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Isn't that nice? Equal, equal, but not the same. Male and female, he created them. Similar bodies, but with differing biology, differing physical characteristics, differing abilities in procreation and childbirth and nurturing and raising children. Differing roles they will play in married life. We'll come on to talk about that. Equal, but not identical. Equal, but not the same. But those differences enjoyed and in working together as one unit with one purpose. Fourthly, marriage is beginning of a new family. It's a recalibration of former family. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. When people get married, oftentimes it's the bride who walks down the aisle and is kind of given away ceremonially. But the Bible actually references the man in this particular verse. And what happens when a couple get married is that they're leaving behind their family. Now, all the speeches for the rest of the day say, welcome to our family, welcome to our family. It's so good to have you in our family. But everybody knows what's really going on, don't they? This couple, they're starting a new life together. They're actually saying, I'm, I'm, I'm not listening primarily to you or to you. I'm listening to her and to him. That's where I find my greatest joy. It's so important that we leave and cleave, as it used to be called in the olden days. Now, part of the journey for parenting adult children is learning to be a friend and a mentor rather than a voice of authority in their lives. Parents don't always get that right. If you are getting married, part of the journey is for you to value and treasure your spouse more than the voice of others, forsaking all others. 
Even friendships change when you get married. And the best friendships, they navigate through sometimes a choppy season of transition. If your best friends get married, it's like, well, how does this work now? Because their whole world has changed. And after a season, you find out what that looks like. And in my experience, those relationships can become even more fruitful and wonderful, but with differences. Fifthly, you with me so far? Great. Marriage is exclusive. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Jesus' definition of marriage seems somewhat narrower than we might like it to be. Jesus says exclusively two people. Polygamy was not endorsed by Jesus, and it's not endorsed in the Bible. The Bible does record numerous examples of polygamy, but usually for the sake of showing us that the results were always harmful and bad, and it turned things very complex. This message would be a very, very controversial thing in a society where polygamy was widely practiced and even respected and encouraged. Jesus says, also, one man and one woman. Jesus seems to imply that same-sex unions are not included in this definition of marriage. That's hugely controversial in our society, where even the law is changed to reflect that. The question is, who are we going to listen to? And Jesus says, let no one separate. Marriage is seen as a lifelong union that holds dearly in faithfulness and love and excludes all other loves. Again, controversial in our world where you're encouraged to just pursue your heart's dream. And if you find your new soulmate, then go with it. Sixthly, marriage is a sharing of everything, even the chips. The two will become one flesh. Two becoming one. The Greek word used is the word used of describing, uh, the, the word used to describe welding two metals together so they can never come apart again. Marriage is the full giving of one to another, all of me to all of you, all that I have with all of you. The very nature of marriage, as family life develops, is it becomes increasingly difficult to extract yourself from it because it's all so intertwined. It's part of God's design. It's a union of ultimate trust. I trust you with all of my possessions, all of my wages, all of my vulnerabilities. And to know that I'm safe doing that here and that you're willing to do that for me. Our culture believes independence is to be held onto, but the model in marriage is interdependence. Jesus, who wasn't married, he modeled it in the relationship with his father. He said, I and the father are one. And what that looked like for him was sometimes disappearing off by a mountain by himself just so he and the father could be one together. 
Marriage is not just about doing life together. It's not just about doing the tasks and the jobs and raising the kids. It's about being one. From sharing a bank account, to sharing a name, to sharing a house, to sharing a bed. Seventhly, marriage is intimate. Any kids in the room? Wow. One flesh. One flesh, it kind of sounds intimate, doesn't it? They were naked and they felt no shame in Eden. It's intimate. Romance and love is at the heart of marriage. Adam even, Adam even sings a little song to Eve. At the creation, he says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's kind of excited to see her. At the heart of every marriage is wonderful, romantic love, or it should be. The world has a very different view about sex. It says sex is for everyone who consents. Worldly portrayals of sex are those of high peaks of ecstasy and abusive, harmful relationships at the other end. By contrast, it seems that the gift of sex is reserved for marriage. It's a special gift for those who enter this kind of union. Sex is never seen in the Bible as about personal satisfaction, but about satisfying the needs and the wants of another. And the focus of it, therefore, is to fulfill the other person. And in time and over time, hopefully your needs also will be met. And in this lifelong union, marital sex, in all honesty, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. Sometimes, sometimes it's wanted, sometimes it's not. But it is secure. It's a secure place for us to have highs and lows. But intimacy goes beyond sex. Uh, somebody wisely once said that a successful marriage requires falling in love many times, all with the same person. Our bodies change. Our thinking changes. Our interests change. Your partner changes multiple times in their life if you're married, and you're going to have to learn to love them again and again and again for who they are, unconditionally. That's what intimate, unconditional love looks like. Eighthly, you stayed with me. This is the last one, okay? It's mortal. Matthew 22, some Sadducees asked Jesus, you know, if somebody who had been married a number of times in their life, whose husband or wife will they be at the resurrection? And he says, he kind of says, well, they haven't really read the Bible very well. Um, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So here's what we need to know about marriage. It's for this life. Now, for some, that may come as a relief. For others, that will be a really worrying thought. So let me just pause for a moment and actually just address that for a moment as to why we can have full confidence in eternity if marriage is not the same as it is in this life. Firstly, because Jesus doesn't explain it much more than that. Firstly, new creation is going to be a lot better than this life, right? Everything about that life is going to be way better than this life. If Jesus made the original world very good, new creation is going to be stunning, and way better than this fallen world. Secondly, 
the, the Bible says we're going to know each other in eternity. We're not going to be walking around blank faced and say, who are you again? What's your name? No, you're going to know people. You're going to find people. I don't think you're going to be camped out on opposite sides of the new creation from your spouse. And one day say, oh, yeah, do you remember that whole time we had on earth? You know? It says in, in Matthew chapter 8, it says, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You know, if there's a table that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can sit together at in heaven and enjoy having fellowship together, I'm pretty sure there's a table where you can spend time with your loved ones, friends, and family. Here's another reason why it's not potentially as as bad as it sounds. Young marriages often require a lot of time and conversation. If you're young and married, you'll know this, that when your spouse says, says to you, I think we need to have a conversation about that. That's usually bad news, isn't it? <laughs> As marriages mature, everything you, you kind of know each other better. You, you don't spend every evening thinking, gosh, we need to have some time together. We must have more time together. We don't have enough time together. No, you say, who should we invite around tonight? <laughs> right? And it's not because you're just bored with each other. It's, it's because, actually, you've, you've chatted about all those things, and, and you just want to include more people in your life. Because it's kind of fun to do that. Well, in the kingdom of heaven, it's a way of including many, many more people into these most wonderful of relationships. And also, a wonderful marriage takes time to build. To build levels of trust and vulnerability, it takes years, and it's only possible, really, with one person. But in eternity, the apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, he says, I will know and I'll be fully known. Isn't that an amazing thought? See, It's going to take Julie all of her life to understand why I am the way I am. (laughs) She's doing well. But even for her, she's never going to fully grasp it, because I don't even understand myself. In heaven, in the new creation, God will know me fully. I'll know myself fully. And all of you will know me fully. All of you will say, I understand Dan at last. Isn't that wonderful? We will get each other. So it's mortal. So here's the question. How does this work? Because that's what marriage is. How does it work? The verse that Jesus quotes from Genesis 2 is also quoted by Paul in Ephesians 5. And every talk on marriage will ultimately end up in Ephesians 5, as Paul describes the interaction of this one flesh in the relating of a husband and a wife. So let's just read that verse again that Jesus quoted. He said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he adds this. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Now, in this context of this verse, Paul has given this instruction to husbands and wives. He says, be submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ. So what we learn about this relationship straight away is that It's a giving, and it's a giving way to one another. And he gives particular instruction to these husbands and wives in Ephesus. To the husband, he describes him as being a servant leader, giving himself up for his wife and for her betterment, just like Jesus gave himself up for the church, putting her interests above his own. There it is on the screen. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. 
and to present her to himself as a radiant church, washing her with the water of the word. And to, sorry, without stain, wrinkle, or other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. The wife in the relationship is described as one who chooses to give herself to her husband and submitting the best of her ideas, wisdom, knowledge, and gifts. And she does that with an attitude of allowing him to shape her ideas. So it says in verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body with which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Submitting to one another perhaps best helps us understand what this looks like in practice day to day. You see, even some of those words in those verses we read, they stick slightly in our throat. Am I right? Because we are taught in our culture that leadership is hierarchical and submission equals subservience. Neither of those things are true in what's being said here. Do any of you watch Strictly Come Dancing? Hands up, come on. Why? <laughs> Just what? No, okay. So I, I watch Strictly Come Dancing, not because I want to, but because I have to. <laughs> My daughter insists that we watch it on a Saturday night, and I thought we were out last night, I thought we'd missed it, and we got in at half ten, she said, Dad, I've recorded it. I was like, oh no. But anyway, so we sit and watch Strictly Come Dancing together. Now, if you haven't seen it, don't, but <laughs> if you haven't, let me just explain. It's a competition with these different couples who are dancing. One part of the couple is a professional dancer, him or her. The other is a celebrity who is learning to dance. Now, even in that dance, the, 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 the man is described as the lead. He's the one who, who sets the dance. But when you see them together, they're never judged on individual performance. They're judged as a pair and how they dance together. And when he steps like this, she does a counter step the other way. When she steps forward, he steps back. When he, uh, when he sort of waltzes her across the room or tangos or whatever it is, she gladly follows with him. He's not forcing her. She knows exactly where they are going because this is something that they've worked on together. The aim of leading is to ensure his partner can dance confidently and well, and together they can whiz around the dance floor to great applause. To the observer, it will look sometimes like he's leading it, sometimes like she's leading it, sometimes it will look just like a wonderful explosion of life as they twirl and twist around. To the untrained eye, it will just look just brilliant. He can't just simply say, you know what, I've had enough. You do this dance alone. He can't make her go where she doesn't want to go. He needs to play his part in the dance. If he throws her up in the air, he must catch her. She must trust him and not simply act independently of him. She must at times pull him forward and lead him in the dance. You know, at a wedding, there's a first dance 
In married life, there's a dance of worship to God with a wife who brings her very best energy and ideas and intelligence, but also says, I'm happy for you to do what you think is best. And then a husband who counter moves says, well, I'm not, just, I'm not interested in doing what's best for me because your well-being and growth and success is my highest calling. And so they twist and twirl, moves and counter moves. Each one's needs not met by demanding, but by being served and loved. How that expresses itself in tasks and doing life together will vary hugely from marriage to marriage. And even if it's one partner's uh, gift in terms of raising children, that doesn't mean it's all her or all him. Isn't it wonderful? It isn't the Victorian ages anymore where the dads say, see you when you're an adult. Isn't it wonderful that dads are more nurturing these days than they used to be? Isn't it wonderful that both men and women can be encouraged in their gifts and in their education and in their workplaces to fulfill the mandate that God has called them to? But let's also be cautious about just splitting everything 50-50 because that just seems fair in life. Let's lean into who we are. Let's lean into our gifts. Let's lean into who God has made us. One final thing. And we're going to then watch a video. No, no final song, big news, okay? We're going to watch a video, which is, uh, I think you'll find really enjoyable. It's a three-minute long video. When you meet somebody for the first time and they sort of drop into the conversation that they're married, usually nobody ever says, whoa, never met a married person before. Amazing. That, that's fairly... Just old news, isn't it, people being married? Isn't it interesting that when Paul talks about marriage, in that verse we just read, he says, wow. Our next verse, please, uh, John. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to become one flesh. It's almost like he just goes, wow. As he realizes, this is a profound mystery. Now, at every point, every married couple has said, this is a profound mystery, right? <laughs> How does this work? But Paul says, of marriage, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Here's what Paul's saying. His moment of wow that he would have a see in this finale this morning is this. That as we contemplate what marriage is, he doesn't want us to know just what it is, but why it is so important. And it's this, because it is the gospel represented in the best way it can be in human relationships. In God's cosmic plan, he has a design which is good for his son to be joined forever with his people. All through the Bible, God is pictured as pursuing, as a bridegroom, pursuing his bride. But sadly, Israel never really wanted to reciprocate. She kept pursuing other gods. But Jesus is looking for his ultimate marriage partner. And he clocks his church and he says, that's her. And the angels all say, oh, she's a bit dirty. She's not, she's not a companion suitable for you, Jesus. But he says, I'm going to make it work. And he's not looking for someone to wash the dishes or do the laundry. 
Rather, he's going to wash their feet and cleanse them from their sin. And he says that he loves her and he lays down his life for her. And he says, all that I am, I give to you as he fills her with the spirit. All that I am, I give to you as he lifts his hands and he raises his hands and spreads them out on a cross to die for us. And this marriage that he invites us into isn't temporary and it's not unhappy and it doesn't get samey or tired. It's joyful and life-giving and goes on forever. You know, in this casual world, people increasingly ask the question, say, well, what is marriage? Why do we even need a bit of paper to show that we're in love and that we can live together? And the answer ultimately to that question is because there is a God who spread out his hands on a cross and he literally, with his blood, he signed your name into the book of life. Such is his commitment and his love for you. He says, I want this to be forever and I want everybody to know about this. And I want to be back to go back and reference it. And I read it every day to remind myself that you belong to me. That is what marriage pictures. It speaks of the greatest love, the greatest gift, the greatest purpose accessible to you and me today, whether we are married or not. This life here, marriages here are about that ultimate marriage. We're going to now watch this video and then we'll close after that. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Symbols, shadows, parables. Sometimes this is about that. Flowers are about love. Signatures are about promises. Fireworks are about celebrations. Poppies are about war. And marriage is about the Christian gospel. This mystery is profound, says Paul, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the wedding begins with the groom waiting at the front. He has pursued his bride and won her, and now he just has to wait. And when she eventually comes in, the whole room stands and stares at her beauty, her immaculate dress, pure and white, spotless. She gets presented to him and they declare that they have no other partners. They hold hands. They make promises to have and to hold for better, for worse, forsaking all others as long as we both shall live. They exchange rings, signs of the covenant promises they have just made. They sign their names and make their vows legal. Then, as the ceremony concludes, they walk back out again, united as one. Everything he has is hers, and everything she has is his. Everybody celebrates with a meal. Later, they will express their physical union and share all of their possessions. She even takes on his name. Two have become one, and all this is about that. Jesus has made his people ready. His death for our sins has made us beautiful, pure, white, and spotless. We are given to him and to nobody else. We make promises to each other. Never will I leave you or abandon you, says Jesus, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And we reply to him, I will forsake all other gods as long as we both shall live. There is an exchange of gifts. God gives us his spirit. There is a legal declaration. 
God says we are righteous in his sight. We walk on, united as one. Everything he has, his love, his power, his goodness, becomes ours. And everything we have, our sin, our shame, our past, becomes his. Everybody celebrates with a meal, bread and wine. We express our physical union through baptism in water. We give him access to all our possessions. We even take on his name and his identity. We become Christians. Two have become one. This is about that. Let's stand together and let's pray. This is about that. You know, that day, there's going to be no greater joy than for those who have been faithful, dancing in the love of God, made known in all of its fullness. And, you know, on that day, whether you've been married or not in this life, your conclusion will be there's no greater marriage, no greater love than we're experiencing right now. How good it is to be loved by him. And on that day, there'll be no greater healing than for those who have been faithful. And even some of the things I've talked about will, will, today will have just exacerbated for some a sense of pain or lack. The Bible says he will wipe every tear from our eyes. I don't know about you, I'd want some tears on that day just so Jesus could wipe them away. He will heal. Let's pray right now because we're in a battle. Marriage is a battle. Faithfulness is a battle. Singleness is a battle. But the Holy Spirit has promised to be our help. So Lord, here we are today. We just bring to you all these things that we've talked about. We thank you for this gift of marriage. Lord, anything helpful I've said, would you please... Uh, reinforce that and help people to think about these things. I pray anything unhelpful, help us to forget those, Lord, we pray. But Lord, we do just ask that you would strengthen us wherever we are today, wherever we find ourselves. Whether we find ourselves in early stages of marriage, whether we find ourselves in a difficult marriage, whether we find ourselves in a season of loss and sorrow and sadness, or whether we find ourselves faithfully waiting or trusting you, we say, Lord, You know all of our needs, but Lord, we know that you will meet them, and we know that your grace is enough. So be with us today, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.